he is one of the prophets. And so I wanted to spend just a few minutes before we actually got into the book of Amos to talk a little bit more broadly about the, the Old Testament prophets as a whole. Uh, I don't know about you if you uh, really enjoy the Old Testament prophets, but my guess is that most of you, when you open up your Bible in the morning to do a devotional, you don't find Haggai, right? Or you don't find Amos. Uh, you don't, maybe, maybe Jeremiah, one of the bigger ones. But these smaller little prophets that kind of get clumped together towards the end of, of the Old Testament, I think oftentimes get ignored. And so we are going to spend uh, a few weeks here in the book of Amos. But I, I want to share uh, an illustration that one of my professors in seminary used to help us understand What's going on when you open up your Bible and you read any one of the prophets? And it's a sports illustration. So if you like sports, here's a sports illustration. If you don't, I'm sorry, but at least you'll understand, I think, hopefully a little bit better about what's going on when you open up your Bible to a book like Amos or any of the prophets. What's, what's going on? So I want to ask you a question. Uh, how many of you have a positive perception or a, a positive uh, image when uh, the word referee comes to mind? Raise your hands. Not one. Oh, a few of you. Okay, very good. Good, Gabe. I'm glad you like the refs. That'll change when you get older. But um, for most of us, when we think about a referee in any particular sport, right, um, negative images usually come to mind. I think one of the hardest jobs in sports, this is my personal opinion, would be being a referee because uh, it's mostly a thankless job, right? Uh, So when you do a good job as a referee, when you make good calls, do you get recognized? No, you don't get recognized. That's just your job, right? You're doing your job. You make the correct calls and it, it really goes unnoticed. And yet when you make a bad call, what happens? You get noticed, right? When you make a bad call, uh, you know, oh, the, the wide receiver was out of bounds when he was in bounds. The puck went into the net when it actually didn't. Things like that. Uh, they get a lot of blame. And oftentimes, us as fans, and I've been guilty of this too, how many, how many times have these words come from our mouth? Well, we would have won the game, but those refs, those referees, man, they really got us good, right? And sometimes that's true. Um, being a referee would be a very difficult thing. And I'd like to use this illustration, this image of, of, uh, of teams playing in a league with uh, owners and sports and rules and referees to talk a little bit about how the Old Testament works. In particular, how the, the role of the Old Testament prophet is similar to a referee. So if the Old Testament prophet is like a referee, then what's, what's the game that's being played? I'd like to suggest to you that when you open your Bibles and you read through the prophets, the game, so to speak, that is being played in prophetic literature is how the nations of the earth, how different nations, in particular, the two nations that are God's covenant people, Judah and Israel, but really how all the nations relate to one another and how they relate to God. That's the game that's being described when you open up your Bible and you read the prophets. It's how are the nations, in particular God's nations, but but all of them, how are they relating to one another? And then how are they relating to God? That is the game to use our sports illustration. And so if that's the game, then what are the teams? Well, most obviously, the teams are the nations themselves, right? And so think whatever team you like, the Chicago Bears, the Dallas Cowboys, that's an easy one to choose between, Uh, the Houston Texans, right, the St. Louis Cardinals, Cubs, whatever, right? If you, you think of the team playing in a league, the teams in the Old Testament are the nations themselves, right? They are the teams. And who do you think is the owner? Who's the team owner in that scenario? 
Well, it would be God, because God creates all mankind, and he owns all of the nations. And so God owns every single nation, and they are accountable to him as the team owner. And not only that, but since he's the owner of the teams, he also acts kind of like the league commissioner. He establishes the rules by which the game is going to be played, right? So God owns the teams, but he also sets the rules. He sets the standards of the game, the standards of which how nations are to relate to one another, how people are to relate to one another, and how people are to relate to God. And so let's move on to the rules. What are the rules of the game then? The God is the owner, right? He sets the rules. The teams are the nations. But what are the rules? Well, in hockey, there's a different set of rules, and in baseball, there are a particular set of rules, right? Each sport has its own set of rules. Well, here in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament prophets, there are different sets of rules for different teams. First of all, if you begin with God's teams, right, with the teams, the covenant nations that God has entered into a relationship with, Judah and, and, and Israel, they play by different rules. The rules that they must play by is the Old Testament law. It's what God has revealed in the Old Testament for his covenant people. That's the rules by by which they have to play by. But what about the other nations? Because there are numerous other nations mentioned in the Old Testament and in the prophets, and and even in Amos, we're going to get several other nations mentioned. What, What rules do they have to play by? Well, the rules that they have to play by are universal morality, and the humane treatment of other people. That is, generally speaking, what has God revealed in nature about how people are supposed to interact with other people? So those are the rules. And we come back around then to the role of the prophet. Because the role of the prophet is the role of the referee. Now, in a sporting event, right, say basketball, baseball, football, pick your sport, what does the referee do? Well, I would suggest to you that the referee has the authority to enforce the rules on the team, right? And so when somebody's double dribbling or traveling, it's the referee's job to do what? To blow the whistle and to say, that's... That's a foul, right? You're not supposed to do that. Or in football, somebody, uh, there's a false start. It's their job to enforce the rules. They call the penalties when the teams break the rules. And then what the Old Testament prophet does is tells the team what God's punishment is going to be. So there's a, there's a negative aspect to it, and that comes out most of all in the prophets. It's, it's the, the referee blowing the whistle, throwing the, the yellow flag, and saying, you, wait, wait, you've broken the rules. You're not playing the game, Israel, Judah, Ammon, right? Uh, you're not playing the game by the rules that God has set forth. So there's a negative sense, but there's also a positive sense, because what do referees do in, in football, let's say? Uh, when uh, the quarterback throws a touchdown pass and the wide receiver catches it and crosses the goal line, what does the referee do? This, right? And what does that mean? He's, call, he's acknowledging that that, that that team did something right, right? He's acknowledging that that team scored a touchdown and therefore he awards them blessings, right? He awards them points, right? He, so the referee in the Old Testament doesn't just say, you broke the rule, but he also says, you're doing well. You're playing by the rules, and I'm going to speak for God to give blessings. And so hopefully this sports illustration helps us understand a little bit more as we get into the book of Amos, what in the world is going on. And here's the thing about referees. Most of the time, they are not 
liked, right? We don't like referees. Most of the time, people speak badly to referees. They, uh, you know, they curse referees. They're not welcomed. And uh, oftentimes in the Old Testament, it's going to be the same for the Old Testament prophet. People don't like hearing you're not doing something right, right? And uh, so oftentimes the prophets are persecuted even to death. So what does the prophets and the prophet Amos show us? Well, lots of things that we're going to see in the, in the coming weeks. But one of the things I want to uh, end on here as we transition into a, a time period of prayer is that the prophets show us that God cares about nations. So God cares about Egypt and Iran and Iraq and America and Spain. God, God cares about nations. God cares about what groups of people collectively and individually, but collectively mostly in the prophets, God cares about what nations do. He, he cares about if they're playing by his rules or not. He cares about people. He rules over nations. He responds to nations. And the more they know about his standards, the more accountable they are. And so what we're going to do now is I've invited uh, one of our elders, Dan Schumacher, to come. And he's going to pray for us. It's a, a good time for us to spend a few moments in prayer for our nation as we're going to see God cares about nations and he cares about what groups of people do. And so, Dan, come on up now and, and lead us in a, a short time of prayer as we spend time on our knees before God praying on behalf of our leaders and our, and our nation because God cares about nations. Let's pray. Uh, first, I'm going to start off reading uh, from Timothy, just a few verses here from 1 Timothy 2. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just to look at these uh, few verses, um, we're, uh, we're invited here uh, to pray, uh, specifically in Timothy, for kings and all those in authority. And just like um, officials at sporting events, we tend to blame politicians for all our troubles. Um, they need our prayer. They're trying to do the best they can, most of them, I hope. Uh, but we need we we really need to pray for the uh, uh, like it says kings and those in authority uh, that they would uh, they would lead in a God pleasing way. And then as we move on into, into verse three, God wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Um, not all men will be saved, but it would be God's desire that all would be saved, and we would pray for that that. Um, that we would be uh, instruments of his hands and that we would reach out and do what we can uh, to spread the gospel and that uh, we would desire that, that all, all be saved. So if you join me in prayer, gracious Father, um, it's clear from uh, the words of Timothy that you love us all and that you would love to see us all in heaven. Father, we're just uh, grateful that you prepared such a beautiful, wonderful place for us that we we cannot even imagine uh, the glory and the beauty that we're going to find there for eternity. Uh, Father, we just uh, we thank you that you sent your son, that we can put our faith in his shed blood that will, uh, that will save us uh, for eternity. 
Lord, we, uh, we do pray this morning for those that lead our nation, uh, whether it be uh, here in Cisna Park or uh, the President of the United States, Lord. We just pray for all those in authority that they would come to know you if they don't, that they would lead in a, in a way that pleases you, Lord. Father, we, uh, we do thank you for this glorious day you've given us, for the chance to be here without persecution. Uh, Father, that is a freedom that we enjoy here that so many in the world do not. And we just, we are grateful and we pray for those that are persecuted when they, when they desire to worship you. We pray for the leaders of those nations that they would have softer hearts, that they would allow your, uh, your believing clan to, to gather and, and praise you. And Father, today we, we uh, pray for Trey as he starts off this series on Amos. Uh, Lord, I believe the, uh, the book of Amos has a lot to say about our nation and where we're at today. And we would pray that we would have ears to hear and we would uh, really truly listen to what you have to say to us. So, Father, we just thank you for the chance to be here. We thank you for the worship team that uh, leads us in, in lifting you up in praise, Lord. So we just uh, ask you to bless this day. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand and sing now about our great God and Savior, Jesus, all that he did and all that he does for us. Let's stand and sing. <clears throat> all righty. Howdy. You can, you can say howdy back. Howdy. Okay, welcome. Hey, uh, turn your Bibles to the book of Amos. So you may be wondering, where in the world is the book of Amos? Well, it's in the Old Testament, right? Uh, If you uh, open up kind of towards the center of your Bible, uh, you'll find Psalms, you'll find Proverbs, uh, you'll find some of the major prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel. If you keep turning to your right past Ezekiel, past Daniel, you'll eventually get to Hosea and keep going. And uh, once you get past Hosea, uh, then you got one more, you got Joel, and then you get to Amos. Uh, If you're using the Pew Bible, uh, it's on page 745. If you're using your own Bible, I don't know what page it's on, so look in your index, right? Uh, But open with me to the book of Amos. Uh, God's passionate plea to his people. That is really what the book of Amos is in a nutshell. It's about God's passionate plea uh, to his covenant nation of Israel. Uh, But more than that, there are a ton of good applicable principles Uh, and truths that apply to us here today, God's new covenant people in the church. Lots of good things. Today we're going to cover Amos uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So we're not going to get very far, but there is quite a bit here in these two verses, and it's going to serve as a a bit of an overview, an introduction, if you will, to the book of Amos. And then as we get into it next week, we'll be covering a lot more ground than two verses. Uh, I trust that you're there, Amos chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. If you're taking notes, I want you to jot down three things. If you're not taking notes, jot down three mental notes so that you'll know where we're going, uh, and you you can remember uh, the overview of Amos with three words, and they all start with the letter A. First of all, we're going to see the author. Who is the author, and uh, what does he have to tell us? Uh, Number two, the age, A-G-E, the age. We're going to learn a little bit about the author of the book, and then we're going to find out quite a bit from Amos himself about the age in which Amos lived and the nation to which Amos preached about. And I hope we're going to see some of the similarities to the age and the nation that we live in here today. So first of all, we'll look at the author. Second of all, we'll look at the age. And then third, we'll look at the aim, A-I-M. What is the aim of the book of Amos? What is his message What is he intending to accomplish? So three A's, and let's start with the first one. As we get into Amos chapter 1, verse 1, first of all, we see the author. uh, And this is uh, the word of the Lord. It begins this way. Uh, The words of Amos, 
one of the shepherds of Tekoa. So in this very beginning line, we're introduced into uh, the author, the one who writes this prophetic piece of literature. And simply, we have his name, the words of Amos. Uh, What do we know about him? Uh, Not much, to be uh, real honest. We don't know much about him. We know, uh, first of all, his name. We know that his name means burden bearer, or one who bears a heavy load. So just at the outset, oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes when you look at the names of the prophets, it's indicative of their ministry. It's indicative of what's going to come. And so if his name means burden bearer, what that's going to tell us is that he is going to bring a heavy message from God. And not only is he going to bring a heavy message from God, but he's going to bring a heavy message from God to a hostile environment. We're going to see that in just a bit. So his name means burden bearer. We also see something about his vocation. Read that little line with me. The words of Amos, there's his name. Secondly, we see his vocation. What does he do for a living? Well, it says that he is one of the shepherds from the town known as Tekoa. So what does that tell us about this man who uh, is one of the prophets of the Lord? Well, what it tells us is that he is not a professional prophet. What that tells us is that he uh, didn't go around as a prophet of the Lord for any length of time. So this was his one chance. This was his one, as far as we know, this was his one prophetic opportunity to speak the words of the Lord. He, in our terms, he's a layman. He's not someone like me who does preaching and teaching for a life. No, he's one of you. He's one of you. And so God, it was if, it was if God tapped one of you on the shoulders and said, I've got a message that I want you to share. Hey, I've, I've, got, a, I've got a job for you. And you might say, like Amos might have said, I'm just an average Joe. I'm just a farmer. I'm just a rancher. I'm just an accountant. I'm just a nurse, whatever it is. And he, he taps Amos on the shoulder and he says, listen, I've got a job for you. What do we find out? Well, he's a shepherd, which uh, the word really means a breeder or an owner of large flocks of sheep. So he, he's not like one of the lower level shepherds out there with his stick watching uh, under a starry night, right? No, he owns all of those sheep, right? In fact, he owns probably multiple flocks of sheep, which means he was probably well off. He was probably well to do. He was a shepherd. What we find out later in, in chapter 7 is that he is called a grower of sycamore trees or of sycamore fig trees, making him a rancher and a farmer, right? He, he's a rancher, and he's a farmer, but he is an average guy. He's an average guy who God called to do something extraordinary. So we've seen his name, we've seen his vocation. Where does he live? What does this little introduction tell us about where he lives and why that matters? Well, we find out that he is from the town of Tekoa. Now, Tekoa is a town about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. Here in just a few minutes, we'll, we'll see a, a, a map. But for now, he's uh, from a little town about 10 miles south of Jerusalem in the, in the southern nation of Judah. So why does this matter? We're going to find out in just a bit that at this point in time, it's known as the divided kingdom. So there was King David and there was King Solomon. But, but after Solomon died, what happened? God's people, his nation, Uh, split, right? And so there was the southern nation of Judah, and there was the northern nation known as Israel. So where is is our boy from? 
Well, he's from the south, okay? He's a southerner. He's from Judah. But who is he going to preach to? We're going to find out that he's going up north to a nation that is not too friendly with his nation. In fact, they were bitter enemies. So he's called to preach to some people that don't want to hear what he has to say. And they don't want to hear from him because he is a foreigner. So we've seen his name, his vocation, and his, his residency. Just in this little introduction, this little bit that we learn about the author Amos, I think we see a couple of lessons for our, for our own lives. And let me just share these quickly. Number one, God uses and calls ordinary people. God uses and calls professional people, but most of the time he uses and he calls ordinary people. This is who Amos was. He was not extraordinary. He wasn't seminary trained, so to speak. And neither do you to be a Sunday school leader or to listen to Awana verses on Wednesday night or to, to coordinate meal needs that we have here at the church or to, to lead a, a woman's Bible study. Maybe to step out in faith and to become a foster parent or to share your testimony here at church. God uses people like Amos, right? Ranchers, farmers, average Joes. Number two, not only does God use ordinary people, but something that we're going to see in the book of Amos is that oftentimes God calls us to speak the truth to people who simply don't want to hear it. Amos is going to give a message to a group of people who do not want to hear what he has to say. Friends, let me ask you, when you start conversations with your neighbors, with your family members, with your co-workers, and you bring up issues of religion or church or God or Christ, oftentimes, how does that go? Does it go well? Do they say, oh, I really would like to hear more about that. Please tell me. Sometimes it does when God opens hearts, but, but sometimes people say, oh, I don't want to hear about that. Let's change the subject. Let's talk about the Cubs or the Cardinals, right? Uh, they don't want to hear a message from the Lord. Oftentimes, that is how it is with us as well. And yet we are called to preach the gospel to, to everyone and to winsomely and wisely engage people who are often hostile to us and to our message. So we've seen the author, right? We've seen his, his name, his vocation, and his residency. Let's move to the second A, and it's found in the second half of the first verse. Let's move from the author to the age. There's so many good things, so many parallels that we see about the age and about the time and about the nation that Amos is preaching to. I, I hope it's going to sound familiar as we get into it. Let's read the second half of, of verse 1 together. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. Now we get into the age. The vision which he saw concerning who? Israel, right? The vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake. And then we get some historical information about the kings that were ruling during this time period. When Uzziah was king of Judah, that is the nation in the south, and when Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel, that is king in the north. So what do we see here just from this brief description? Let me suggest three things. First of all, we see his audience. And we've touched on this briefly. Who is he preaching to? Let's take a look at the map behind me. Who is his audience? Who is he going to share the word of the Lord with? Well, his audience, we see at the very beginning of this verse, the vision he saw concerning 
Israel. That's the nation there to the north. If you look at the map, you see in the south is the nation of Judah, and in the north is the nation of Israel, which split again after King Solomon. So he is going from the nation in the south to the nation in the north. So this would be, this would be um, similar, uh, let's say, uh, from someone uh, uh, from the United States going into Canada as a missionary preaching the gospel, although it's not exactly that way because geographically we're, we're similar. It would be more like someone from North Korea coming to America and saying, I've got a message from the Lord for you and it's not good. Would we receive that? We would look at them and say, where are you from? You're from one of our enemy nations. You're from we don't, we don't like you guys, right? He, we wouldn't be very welcome, and yet that's the audience that God called him to, a very hostile audience. Secondly, let's see his ministry, right? Let's see his ministry. Let's look at this PowerPoint. When did Amos minister? We're going to fly through this. He ministered, we see, when Jeroboam was king in Israel. Now, there were two Jeroboams, and it may be confusing. There's Jeroboam the first and Jeroboam the second. This was Jeroboam II, the one who came uh, later, and he was king in the northern nation of Israel. Now, we know that Jeroboam II ruled from 793 B.C. to 753 B.C. So, quick math, how many years did he rule? Forty years. Very good. He ruled 40 years, and we're going to find out in just a second, they were really good years for the nation of Israel. I mean, like, prime time, the nation is prospering. So, he at least externally, financially speaking, he was, a, he was a good king, at least externally. And yet we find out in 2 Kings chapter 14 that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So he brought prosperity, he brought peace, and he brought wickedness and idolatry and sin into the nation. That's when he prophesied. So uh, we think that roughly Amos prophesied from 760 B.C. to 750 B.C., roughly speaking. So what about his message? This is where we get into the good stuff. We've seen uh, his audience, the, the nation of Israel to the north. We've seen his ministry, the time, time frame. What is his message? What is the, the primary thrust? What's the picture that we get of the state of Israel at this time? What's going on in the nation? What does Amos address when he speaks to the people of the Lord? If you're taking notes, I want you to jot down five things because we're going to see that these five things from the very message of Amos himself, when you read through the, the book of Amos, and I encourage you during these weeks that we're walking through, read it, read it regularly, read it repeatedly. What you see when you read through it is that five, at least five things jump out at you about this age, about the nation of Israel that Amos speaks to. Number one, it was a time of prosperity. It was a time of great prosperity. In fact, it was a time of prosperity unparalleled except for maybe when King Solomon ruled over a united kingdom. So it was a time where business thrived. Do you see the references there? You don't have to write them down. I can get them to you later. Businesses in Israel were booming. It was good, right? Business was good. An upper to middle upper class emerged. And so there were not only the the pretty wealthy people, there were the very wealthy people because business was booming. We find out in a couple scriptures uh, that many of the Israelites had expensive both summer homes and winter homes. So it would be like you have a house in Florida, 
you own one property down in Florida, and you go down there during the winter time, and then you come up to here to Illinois, right, for the, for the summer. You're, they were wealthy enough that they could own two homes. And they were not just homes, they were ornate. And we're going to see that in the weeks to come. We see that they led an indulgent lifestyle. Listen, it was a time of prosperity. It was a time of materialism. It was a time of business that thrived. It was a time where the upper class was having their way. People were living it up. And so if you were to ask the average Israelite in that time period, hey, how's life under King Jeroboam? What do you think they would say? They would say, this is great. Man, he's an awesome king. You know, my business is thriving. My camels, they're multiplying. The sheep herds are growing. It's awesome, you know? Prosperity. Number two security. Not only was it a time of prosperity, but oftentimes prosperity leads to what? Security. And so what we find out, uh, politically speaking, is that the, the nations, many of the nations that surrounded the nation of Israel were relatively weak at this time. And so think of it this way. The borders of the nation of Israel were fairly secure. They weren't concerned about Canada invading from the north. And they weren't concerned about Mexico invading from the south, right? It just wasn't a threat at this time. Now, it would be later. And so they had a sense of security. There are some scripture references that seem to uh, make us believe that the people thought that they were immune to any disaster. That is, they thought nothing bad is ever going to happen to us. It's going so well. We are immune to any kind of disaster. And worse... They believed that God was with them. They they looked at their prosperity and they looked at their security. And what did they think? God's blessing us. God must be happy with us. He must be happy with what we're doing. He must be happy with our choices. He must be happy with our lifestyle. And all of the while, that was absolutely not true. Prosperity, security. Number three, injustice. This comes up over and over again. In the book of Amos, the poor of the land were both legally exploited and economically exploited. That is, the wealthy people would pay off judges. They would use their money to pervert the justice system to get their way. And who suffered? The ones who did not have the money to pay off and bribe the judges of the land. So they were legally exploited. They were economically exploited. That is, those who are rich used what they had to take advantage of the poor financially because they couldn't do anything about it. Oftentimes, many of the poor were resigned to becoming slaves. That is, intentionally, they had the choice. They became slaves and they worked for dirt cheap just to make, just to make a little bit of money. So there was injustice. Number four, immorality. The nation was prosperous. The nation was secure. And yet, the nation was immoral, grossly immoral. In particular, we're going to see that the nation, what highlighted the immorality of this nation was their sexual immorality. And that's the way it goes, isn't it? When you look at a nation that is going away from God, look at the sexuality of the people and you'll find out how they're doing. Number five, hypocritical religion. Amos tells us that the people of God were going through the motions. They were worshiping on idolatrous 
altars. And not only idolatrous altars, but, but get this. Remember way back when. Do you remember way back when, when the Israelites were coming out of the promised land and Moses goes up on the mountain, right? And what do the people do? They make a what? They, ma- they make a golden calf, right? They say, here is your God. Here is the Lord. Here is Yahweh. Well, the kings in the north for a long time had said, listen, we know that God says that we're supposed to worship down in the south in Jerusalem, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to set up two different altars of worship, alternative altars of worship, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to make these golden calves, and you're thinking, They've already done this before, right? Okay, history repeats itself. They make these golden calves, and the kings of the north say, no, 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 don't go down to the south. Don't go down to the south. Come to the north. Stay in the north. And what it was, was a syncretistic religion. There was some truth, but it was mixed with falsehood. And so people were hypocritical in their religion. They went through the motions. They went to the festivals. They offered their sacrifices. They came and set their behinds in the pews every Sunday, but their hearts We're far from God. And so let me ask you a a question. Does that kind of a nation sound similar, familiar? Does that sound like any nation that you might know of or maybe even be a citizen of? Warren Wearsby, the great commentator, says this. If the prophet Amos were to come to our world today, he would probably feel very much at home. For he lived at a time such as ours. Um, May I suggest to you that as we work through the book of Amos, it will be an indictment, not just on the nation of Israel, but it will be to a large degree an indictment on our very nation and our very people. We too uh, live in an age like this. We too live in a nation at the height of its power politically. We too live in a nation that is extremely prosperous And our businesses, generally speaking, are thriving. We lead the world economy. We live in a nation that has an upper and a middle class that, in particular the upper class, lives an extremely indulgent lifestyle. But if you looked at the middle class folks as compared to the middle class folks of other nations, uh, we might live that way as well, right? We live in a nation with a sense of security that comes from our prosperity, doesn't it? We live in a nation like this. We live in a nation where our geographical neighbors are relatively weak, just like the nation of Israel. We live in a time where there, at times, is a disparity in the application of the law between rich and poor. Not all the time, but certainly at times. And we live, too, in a nation where morality is going down the drain. A nation, especially, where sexual immorality is moving further and further away from God's standards. I would suggest to you that we live in a nation and have a church, and I use that loosely, where many folks just go through the motion, and yet their heart is far from God. So Amos has much to say, has much to say for me and you. Let's wrap up with number three. We've seen the author, we've seen the age. Let's take a look at the aim. What is What is the aim? What's the goal? What's the purpose? What's the message? What's the overarching theme of the book of Amos? Well, it's pretty much like all of the other prophets for the most part. Verse 2. He said, this is Amos, he said, the Lord roars from Zion, a reference to Jerusalem there in the south where he's from. 
He said, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up. And the top of Mount Carmel, which is in the north, withers. The message of Amos is a message of judgment primarily. There is a picture of grace. There is a picture of hope and restoration that God gives. And it comes at the very end of the book. But for the most part, the the message of Amos is a message of warning and of judgment. Notice the image. Did you see the image? What is God portrayed as? The Lord roars from Zion. It's a picture of God as a lion. It's a picture of God as a lion roaring about to devour his prey. And here's the thing about the lion. I don't watch much of Discovery Channel, but uh, I did a little research, and I, uh, what seems to be true is that when the lion is attacking his prey, what does he do? Gently, gently, quietly, quietly stalks the prey, stalks the prey, and when it's time to pounce, what does he do? Roar! Right? That's the best roar I got. Sorry. He roars, right? He roars as he's about to pounce. Now, when the nation hears that, they hear the image of one, what has God been doing? For some 200 years, the nation of Israel has been wayward. God's people has been wayward. And God has been incredibly patient. Incredibly patient. For some 200 years, the lion has been creeping, 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 all the while saying, repent, 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 repent. But at some point, the lion gets to his prey. And at some point, God says, you've had enough time. I'm going to bring judgment upon you. And the lion roars from Zion. The structure of the book shows us how Amos accomplishes his aim. You don't have to, I'm going to show a chart here. You don't have to write it down or anything. There's there's some printed in the back. So if you're interested in it, go ahead and grab it. But the structure shows us how Amos does this. In chapters one and two, we see the roar of judgment. What Amos is going to do is he's going to pronounce judgment on eight different nations, both non-covenant nations and covenant nations, and he's going to climax with the nation of Israel. It's going to be the roar of judgment. In chapters 3 through 6, he's going to give us the reasons for judgment. So why is God going to judge uh, these nations? In particular, why is God going to judge the nation of Israel? He's going to give five reasons. Five reasons. More than that, but generally speaking, five reasons. Materialism. 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 